everyone. Welcome to the Missio podcast. Um, this past Sunday, it was the first uh, Sunday of Lent, and so I hope that you are enjoying the Lent season. Um, it's a long season, so pace yourself and just enjoy the process of fasting and connecting with God. And so today we are continuing our series, Seeking God's Kingdom First. And between now and Easter, we're going to be unpacking the kingdom in the Old Testament, starting all the way back at the beginning, way back in kind of the origin story of God's kingdom from the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And so just remember that every kingdom has a king has a people, it has a land and a law. And so in the garden, there are all of those, right? God is king, Adam and Eve are the people, Eden is the land, and the law is simply the uh, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the law. So, but have you ever wondered how certain things actually come into existence? I think one of the things that I love to do is to learn the origin stories of things. I love learning how you know, things like cinema began, came about, how bi bicycles were invented, which then requires you to, you know, learn about how wheels came, uh, came about, um, or like things like Dungeons and Dragons. Where'd that start? What group of friends sat around and began to like, Hey, let's, let's come up with this new role-playing game. One of the things though that fascinates me most is actually learning <laughs> about the origins of shoes, which I realize might sound kind of strange, but I grew up in Portland, which a suburb of Portland is Beaverton, and Beaverton is where the global headquarters of Nike exists. And so growing up, especially as a, as a basketball player at my school, Nike was like everything to us. And so our team, we would go to the Nike employee store because one of our friends who was on the team, his brother actually worked for Nike and he could get us into the Nike employee store, which was like the mecca of, you know, sports shoes stores because you could go and anything that Nike had ever created, including the Jordan shoes, were like a quarter of the price. And so this was like the greatest thing that a kid can ever have. But anyways, I recently saw that there was a movie that's coming out soon made by uh, Ben Affleck called uh, Air, which is actually talking about the origin of the Air Jordans. Um, and again, Ben Affleck, he plays Phil Knight, which is also a great origin story. Phil Knight was a track athlete at Oregon with Prefontaine and actually started selling shoes out of the back of his car. And that's the way that Nike started. But anyways, this movie talks about the way that the Air Jordans were created, which is one of the most famous, you know, shoe brands on the planet. And so naturally thinking about that got me wondering, where did actually shoes come from? Which apparently the first shoes that were ever discovered by archeologists were from the Paleolithic period, nearly 40,000 years ago. And it's this kind of stuff that really fascinates me because learning where things began helps us understand the original purpose of that thing, which then I think helps us better appreciate where that thing is now, today. 
you know, so often when you hear people talk about the kingdom of God, they're, they typically start with Jesus. And that makes sense in a, in a lot of ways because Jesus made his ministry's purpose, or at least one of his ministry's purpose, to talk and help people discover the kingdom. But the origin of the kingdom isn't with Jesus in the first century. The origin of the kingdom is at the very beginning, in the garden, as God is crafting and shaping and forming all things into existence. And to me, this is really important. Because if we don't understand what God is doing in the garden, then it's really hard to understand what he is then working throughout the rest of human history to restore and to make new. And so I want to actually read Genesis chapter 1. It's kind of a long chapter, but we're going to read it together uh, just to kind of frame what we're talking about. And so Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing, plant-bearing seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to, to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth and it was so God made God made two great lights the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night he also made the stars God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the sky, the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth and the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, 
over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It's the word of God from Genesis chapter one. So, you know, I was thinking for the last week or so about the difference between the ideas of restoration and renovation. And this may be uh, just semantics difference, right? But And it may be an oversimplification in some ways, but a way of thinking about the difference is that a renovation repairs repair something, right, while also updating an area without changing its overall purpose and function. While a restoration restores a space to its original condition with original materials or perhaps like replicas of the original pieces. And so to renovate means that we're refreshing. We are reinvigorating that thing, but with updated or brand new materials. The overall purpose of the space is remaining the same, but it's been modernized and renewed. While to restore means that you're putting things back the way they were intended, right? You're putting it back the way that it was before time caused it to kind of have this wear and tear. So when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in my very first musical. We did the show Lil Abner, which is about a small town of normal people, but one of the guys in the town who is Lil Abner apparently has been drinking like this tonic or whatever since he was a kid that makes him big and strong and handsome like a stud muffin or whatever. And so naturally I played Lil Abner, which I think mostly was because I fit the real description of Lil Abner as big, dumb, and mildly uninterested in the people around me. And honestly, it took me a while to realize why I was cast for that role. But anyways, I'm not hurt or anything by it. But there is a scene in the musical where there's like five or six other couples in the town and and the guys decide that they want to drink the tonic, this potion or whatever it is, to turn them from being these small, kind of unattractive, weak little guys into these Lil Abner type figures. And so they all drink the formula and they come out kind of strutting these huge muscles and crazy good looks. But their wives discover that they no longer have any romantic feelings whatsoever. And they really actually don't even care or notice their wives at all. And so the wives enter into this song that's kind of central to the story called Put Them Back. Which I'm sure that you can guess the lyrics of the song. Some of the lyrics are Put Them Back the way they was put them back the way they was they was dumb they was heathen but at least they was breathing <laughs> so put them back the way they was they was plumb unattractive but by gum they was active put them back the way they was so so anyway you you get the gist of, uh, of this song it's a strange little musical but they wanted their husbands to be restored back exactly to the way that they were before they drank this tonic and turned them into these little abners and so anyways, there's, there's a difference, though, between the ideas of renovation and restoration. 
To renovate means to improve upon and make something better while also keeping the overall purpose the same. To restore means to put something back the way it was intended to be. And often when I hear people talk about the kingdom and the world as a whole, you know what tends to happen is we talk about this idea of restoration. That God created the world. He, you know, he built all things with his intention and desire in them. And then Adam and Eve sin and the creation is broken. And what God is doing from that point forward is he's seeking to restore things back to the way that they were before sin entered the, into reality. Yeah, I grew up in a church culture called the Restoration Movement. And much like any church denomination or movement, you know, there were some really good things about that movement that very much shaped me into the person that I am today. But there are also things that were, you know, not so great, things that we wanted to move away from or, or change within that. But growing up, I would hear a phrase that sounded really good, you know, when I would hear it when I was younger, but the older I got, it started making less and less sense. Um, it took a while to really understand what people were talking about. Because I hear people say that we, as the Restoration Movement, were restoring the New Testament church today, which sounds really good, right? So there was this commitment to trying to simplify, which, which I love the way that they wanted to simplify the way that the church across the nation had been headed. And so I'd hear this idea that we were restoring the New Testament church now, going back to the original church. And, and some people in this movement really honestly believe that they were restoring like carbon copy realities of the, the first century church. And so the goal was to look like, sound like, be like the first century church. The problem was that they were driving to church using projectors or whatever, a book and a three-piece suit, you know, going to IHOP afterwards or whatever. You know, all the things that didn't actually exist in the first century church. But at the same time, many of the churches in that restoration movement, what they were wanting to restore was not like the nuts and bolts of what things looked like in the first century church, but rather the original purpose and the intention of that first century church. You know, it's commitment to scripture, the desire to be in community with people of faith, the desire to honor and obey God, to become Christ-like in their lives. They looked at what they were seeing in the world of church and religion, and they said, we need to get back to what God intended for us, to worship and community and to love each other and all these kinds of things. And as I think about that goal and desire, the thing that strikes me is that there is restoration in that. There is a sense of restoring that first century church ideal, but, but there's also a lot of re renovation in it as well, right? There's making things new for our time and context while holding to the purpose and the intention of the New Testament church. See, to renovate acknowledges where things started and says, I want to honor that by keeping the ideals and the purpose and the goals intact, but it, make, but it has to make sense for, for where I am, for when we are, with who we are with, right? So we make things new. When I think about God's kingdom, there is an original design in the garden. We just read the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. God's design and creation was present and intact, but what happens to that creation? It gets distorted, it breaks, and it no longer functions the way that God intended for it to, and it's because sin entered into the story, because humanity chose to ignore and walk away from God, and all these things begin to be under a curse, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes. But the rest of scripture, and really the rest of human history, is God attempting to restore the original intent of his kingdom in the garden while also making things new. 
God himself tells Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 14 through 19, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, armor, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? John later records in Revelation 21, a moment where Jesus himself is speaking from his throne saying, See, I am making things, all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And see, this is important because God created with the intention that his creation would thrive in the garden for all time. The garden was where God and his creation, his entire creation, would enjoy the constant beauty of life together. But, to, but also within that, in that creation, he created something incredibly important. What God wanted was to be in a loving relationship with all of his creation. But in order for that to happen, one thing in particular needed to exist. The ability to choose. Right? So he created choice. See, choice is one of the ultimate acts of love because it allows for the possibility of someone choosing to not love. You know, when my best friend and I, Matt Ray, and I grew up together, we lived across the street, and we would hang out all the time, and we would play with Marvel action figures. <laughs> Before Marvel was a cool thing to do or, or understand, we were playing with Marvel action figures. And so we'd end up, you know, like setting up the action figures and then direct them and cause them to do whatever we wanted. We loved playing with those toys. But there was no real love relationship between us and the toys, Right? Real love exists when the ability for another person or thing to return that love is present. You know, I love the house that we have, but my house has no ability to return my love to me. We're not in a loving relationship, even though I still experience the emotion of love for my home. Love requires love in return for it to be a real loving relationship. The ability to choose God, to choose to love him, was an incredible act of love from God because it left the door open for humanity to choose not to love him. But see, that was important to God because he didn't want action figures who lifelessly move and have no ability to return love. He wanted humanity to choose him, to see him, and to say, I know your love for me and I choose to love you in return. The ability to choose is this incredible act of love. We can say yes to, to life and beauty and goodness, or we can say yes to selfish ambition, to vain conceit and wickedness and evil. <clears throat> I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking about the power and importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they were saying how love when you are by yourself is not really love at all. Love requires an other, some other person or thing in which you are then able to feel and express this truth of love toward. 
And one of the, the importances of the Trinity is that it helps us understand that love is truly the definition of God. The Trinity, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because they were able to express and understand love in the context of one another. And so creation was an expression of love because it was born out of a desire for the fullness of what was known and felt in the Trinity to then be known and felt within the created order. And so in the creation story, you hear this desire of God for his creation to know the power and ability to choose that same love that exists between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. When you read the creation account, there is this sense that as God reaches out to create from the posture of that love, that he longs for that creation then to reach back to him in that same love. You know, six times in Genesis, as God is creating all things, he looks out at what he has created and he says, what about it? He, he calls it good. Now, this word good is, is the word tov in Hebrew. And, and uh, this is a word that we've actually looked at a lot at, at Missy over the last year or so. This word tov is used over 700 times in the Bible. And more often than not, it's used to describe God himself. And so Psalm 119, 68 says, God is good and he does good. David says in Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. See, the truth of this word tobe is that it's difficult to uncover the full meaning of it in English, though. One of the things you learn when you study other languages is that oftentimes meaning doesn't translate as well as you hope that it would. <laughs> and this is especially true within ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek, which is what the Bible is written in. And so there are words in the Old Testament in Hebrew like hesed. Hesed is often translated in a variety of ways in English, from words like love and loyalty to mercy, steadfastness, and many other things. And the reality is that the word hesed in Hebrew actually incorporates all of those English words all at once. And so often what would happen is these you know, translators of the Hebrew Old Testament would come across the word Hesed, and they would often just simply have to choose one of its meanings in English to translate it into. And so, for example, the passage from Exodus chapter 34, where God tells his character to Moses, the word hesed appears twice in the Hebrew Old Testament, in two verses. And in almost all the English translations, the words that they choose to use in English to translate hesed are different words. So sometimes they translate it as grace or mercy, love, steadfast love. Same Hebrew word <laughs> used in, in twice in two verses, two different English words used to translate it into, to try and wrap our brains amount, around the Hebrew meaning. We see this in words like love. In the Greek, there are four words for love. Phileo, eros, storge, and agape. They each mean love, right? But they articulate something different about love for each of those words. And this is often the way that we translate the word tov in English. It, in most appearances of the Hebrew word tov, we translate it as good or goodness, when in fact the word describes something a bit more involved than simply good. See, not only do we not have one-to-one -one equals in words from like Greek and Hebrew into English, but you know how sometimes you're going to use a word in casual conversation and the context of that word helps you understand something a bit deeper than perhaps you're communicating just through simple words. Like, have you ever told somebody happy birthday? 
I'm sure you have. This is something we say all the time to people. But when we say happy birthday, typically that's all we're meaning by it. We're just meaning I hope that you have a good birthday. That's it. There's nothing much deeper to it. But then if you ask someone to close their eyes and to think for just a moment of, of, of one specific memory in their life, when the fullness of joy and contentment and beauty and love filled every aspect of their being in that memory. And you ask them to think about who is there, what are they feeling, what are they experiencing, what is being said, are they laughing, are they crying tears of joy, what is going on in that memory. And as they allow that memory to fill their minds, then you ask them to say that word happy and you can watch what their body and their face and their emotions do when they say that word happy as they think of that moment. See, there's a difference between saying happy birthday and that moment in your mind which now defines happy. And it's because it means something so much deeper than the word itself is able to communicate. And see, what often I think happens when we read scriptures, sometimes we convince ourselves that if we read these words in the Bible, then we just know what is automatically being articulated. And so we read that God created all things and he calls it good, that he called it Tove. And so we feel like, I know what good means. <laughs> it means morally excellent or high quality or pious. And then we give the, the 21st century defi dictionary definition of an ancient word that we know very little about. But not only do we not have an adequate way to understand Tov in English, but we also don't have a way to fully grasp the depth of what was being articulated as God looked at his creation and his heart swelled with the power of love and, and as he looked at everything and he says, man, that, that is good. Because Tov described God. God is good. He is good and he does good. Tov also describes God's design for creation. So when he creates in the garden, he looks at it, and the way he evaluates his creation is to call it good. The artistic evaluation of his work is characterized as good, so all creation is infused with his creativity and goodness. Tov, though, is also active. It works to bring righteousness and justice God moved and created all that is just and right. Did you know that the words for righteous and justice in the Hebrew are the same word? So often English translators will choose righteous or justice to translate, but it's the same word. Being righteous and pursuing justice are actionable things that reflect God's tov. To pursue righteousness and justice is to live in the tov of God. All over the New Testament, Jesus is described as, as doing good. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd in John 10, 11. Jesus does, doesn't just do good, though. He is good. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the tov of God. To be like Jesus is to be tov, and to be tov is to be like Jesus. Tov is active, working to create the character and goodness of God in the world. But tov also resists evil. And see, this is really important. Part of what happened in the garden was that God presented the choice of good and evil before Adam and Eve. See, when God gives the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's pitting Tov up against Ra, which was the Hebrew word for evil. And he says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. In other words, resist evil. 
what do they do though? They, they choose to eat the tree uh, from the tree, revealing the evil in the world that they were supposed to resist. And immediately, what happens? They realize that they're naked. But see, it wasn't the nakedness that was evil here. It was the fact that they felt shame for the first time. Their vulnerability was lost and they began to hide themselves from God. They hid from their king who provided for them and cared for them. When you were a kid, if you did something that you knew you weren't supposed to and you knew that your parents knew that you did that thing that you weren't supposed to, if you're anything like me, then what did you do? (laughs) You hid, right? See, it wasn't the naked part that was bad. It was their desire to hide in the shame of their choice that God is trying to get them to, to notice. That they are no longer fully living in the vulnerability of the desired relationship with him. Because ultimately, the main part of the goodness of God demanded a perfect relationship with him. That is what God created in a garden, perfect relationship with his creation. And the moment Adam and Eve eat from the tree, that perfect and vulnerable relationship that was intended is broken. And after things are broken, then the curse comes in Genesis 3. And God says that you're going to have pain in childbirth. You're going to work the ground. You're going to have to work really hard for all these things that are freely given to you, 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 you know, with complete generosity and free will. He says, all that's gone. You're going to have to work. And it's going to be difficult. And there's going to be pain. And, and, and there is this thing that happens in the curse that we really need to talk about. There is certainly this chasm that's created where we no longer have this free access to a life that is present with God like he intended. The good that he desired for us became splintered and broken, but it was more than just what happened between us and God. It was also what happened between human beings and their relationships to one another, but also between humans and our relationships with the rest of creation. What's important to understand about the kingdom in the garden was that the earth was cared for and maintained by God. Humanity was cared for and maintained by God. All living things were cared for and maintained by God. There was no oppression, no fighting, no abuse and manipulation because we were completely cared for by God in his kingdom. But because of this choice, these things were broken. All of creation received a curse. The land itself received a curse for our choice. Weeds and thorns and so much unfold because of the brokenness, a brokenness that we still see today. You know, it was only a couple of weeks ago that this massive earthquake happened in Turkey that claimed the lives of 30,000 plus people. Devastating destruction. Creation was broken because of the sin of humanity. But also the power dynamics between people are a result of the curse, the brokenness in humanity. The, The male and female power dynamics that exist, ethnic and racial struggles, poverty and abuse, exist because of humanity's brokenness. See, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were equal partners called to be caretakers of God's creation. There was no need for a power struggle to exist between them because they were both called to fill the earth, to rule over it. And we've talked about how God was giving them this ultimate job of caring fully for his created earth. To use the character of God as the foundation for the care that they would provide to allow it to be the place of continuing the tove in creation. They were given the responsibility and creativity to name the creatures, to love and extend God's goodness to all creation. And yet the sin of humanity brought about the terrible possibility of power struggles of manipulation, fear, oppression, abuse, and war, and all that is opposite of Tov in human relationships. 
See, in the garden, there was no hardship. There was no power dynamics that people tried to use to gain control over others. There was no, no disease. There was none of these things. Because God was king, and his creation was in complete dependence on him for provision. And in that moment of sin, though, in that moment of disobedience, when all the intentions and original desires of creation were broken, God doesn't just simply throw up his hands into the air as if all was lost. He shifts and begins to pl- a plan to restore his original tension of the tove of his kingdom. He then spends the rest of human history in the position of renovator and restorer. You know, we've talked already about how the not yet kingdom to come is this ultimate moment of restoration and renovation. Revelation 21, 1-5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. See, God isn't trying to turn back the clock and restore things back to the exact way things were in the garden. Instead, the things that God restores through Jesus are his unwavering desire to bring Tove to humanity, his absolute goodness and love. And so as we reflect on the origins of God's kingdom through the story of creation, the thing we should cling to is the choice to love and, and the unwavering desire to bring Tove to the world, to love God and to love others. Does that sound familiar? And see, the way that we bring Tove to the world is by allowing the Holy Spirit to help us become Tove, which reflects the character of God, his love and patience and grace and mercy, forgiveness and justice and mercy, and and so much more. But also to begin to allow the Holy Spirit to help us see the Tove of God that is infused in all things. Because if we see God's Tove in all things, then we will work for their good, not as harm or destruction. And then we actively pursue Tov in righteousness and justice, and we will resist everything that is not Tov. See, this was God's kingdom in the origin story. This was God's kingdom in the garden, and the thing that he is at work to restore and to renovate, to make new with us. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye, everyone.